This episode is brought to you by March of Dimes, the leader in the fight for health for all moms and babies. March of Dimes observed National Birth Defects Prevention Month in January, and March 3rd is World Birth Defects Day. But the sad truth is, birth defects happen year-round. Every year, the March of Dimes partners with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to generate actions women, their families, and care providers can take to prevent birth defects, which affects about 120,000 of the 4 million babies born in the U.S. every year and are a major cause of infant death and lifelong disability. Those are scary numbers, I know. But the good news is there are lots of things we can do to increase a woman's chances of having a healthy full-term pregnancy and baby. The theme for 2020's Birth Defect Prevention Month is Best for You, Best for Baby. And you can follow and share hashtag best number four you, best number four baby on social media platforms. What I love about this campaign is that their message aligns completely with what we talk about here on the podcast, right? So go on over to marchofdimes.org slash PP and P, find best for you, best for baby, and look up their five easy tips any woman can take to increase her chances of having a healthy pregnancy and baby. Everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about anything we want, right? I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is where we started this conversation four years ago. I also wrote the book, Mom's Side of the Story, which you can pick up over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. It's the journal workbook that helps women write themselves as the main character in their baby's life story. Heavens knows everybody else on your healthcare team is writing about you and your body. You should be the one writing your story. Go pick up a copy, will ya? Now, uh, no political rant this week, even though we had the debates last night. Um, again, Today we're going to talk about birth defects and living with children whose bodies are different than what we expected. Now, for all of February, our sponsor has been the March of Dimes, and we've been focusing on their new campaign, Best for You, Best for Baby. And the March of Dimes is just an excellent resource for information and support for families, and their focus is on preventing prematurity and birth defects. They're life changers, and countless families have benefited from their mission. Their new campaign is about the things women, families, and care providers can do to avoid prematurity and birth defects, and I encourage you to head over to their website to check that out. But sometimes babies are born prematurely and with birth anomalies anyways, even when Everybody's done all they could to keep themselves and their babies healthy. So this week, we're going to talk with a couple of women whose babies were born very early and with a variety of health complications. Now, I know, those of you who are pregnant are very worried that something like this could happen to you. I get it. It's not the perfect picture we all have painted in our minds about what we want our children and families to experience. But what we learn through parenting is that 
So much about having children is out of our control, and all we can really do is gather our resources and surrender to what is, no matter whether our children are born differently or not. And, you know, the thing I think you'll hear in both of these conversations is this. No matter what happened and what their children's bodies and health are like, these children are loved, valued, and well-supported. And what we learn through having children is that no matter what, they are our babies, and we love them just as they are. Sure, we might wish things were different. We might wish for different outcomes, but life is beautiful and makes us shine when we are faced with challenges. Now, these two women that we'll be talking with today have met those challenges head on and are raising their very lovely children exactly the way they need to be raised. And that's the goal of every parent, right? So first, we're going to talk with Ashley Schauflutzel. And I apologize, Ashley, in advance if I've mispronounced that last name. Ashley is a teacher and the mother of two. So let's get Ashley on the line. Hi, Ashley. It's Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. Thank you. Ashley, where are you? Where in the country? I am um, just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Ah, okay. And I am right in, close in Portland, Oregon. So we're in real different parts of the country. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ashley, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today. Um, You know, we're doing these special episodes with the March of Dimes um, to talk about, um, you know, what parents can do to either prevent their children from having birth anomalies or what they can do once they realize that their child does have a birth anomaly. And your story is just really interesting on so many levels. So I wanted to talk about that. But my very first Mm -hmm. question to everybody who's on my podcast is the hard one. And it is this, who are you and what do you do? Sure. Um, I'm Ashley. I am a mother to two beautiful kids. Um, My daughter, Ella, is the one with cerebral palsy, the birth defect. And then I have a three-year-old son, Jake, and he's typical functioning. So besides being their mom, I teach kindergarten and I've taught kindergarten for nine years. Wow. That's me pretty much. I think kindergarten teachers are the best human beings on earth. As far as I can tell, I haven't met all the human beings yet, but as far as I can tell, kindergarten teachers, yeah, they're the best. Yeah. You have such such a hard job because not only do you have to take care of the kids, but parents are really affected by having their children go off to school. It's a big deal. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, Being a mom has definitely helped with that, I think. I bet. You have to, you have to talk a lot of us off the ledge. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do. I went, I stayed home for a few years and then I went back to teaching kindergarten the year I sent my daughter to kindergarten. That was hard. Oh, I bet. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So you have a lot of compassion and empathy for, for the kids and for the parents. That's great. Yeah. I try. I hope I do. I really try. Yeah. So tell me again how old your kids are. Um, Ella is seven and Jake is three and a half. Well, you've got them right during the meaty years, don't you? I do. We're yeah. busy. Yeah, yeah. I thought three-year-olds were were kind of um, fun and delightful, and then I thought four-year-olds were super challenging. Other people, it's the opposite. They really have a time of it with their three-year-olds, and then their four-year-olds are, have all evened out. How is it for you? Um, he does okay. He does okay. I don't want to jinx it. He can have a temper. And some good tantrums, but we're trying to work through with it. He does well in school. He does well for others. So I'm just going to kind of knock on wood and hope we're good. Yeah, that seems like about all you can do. That seems like it's okay. It yeah. really is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're here today to talk about what happened to Ella. So I'm wondering if you would mm -hmm. share with us the story about your first pregnancy. Everything was fine sure. until what happened? So at about 16 weeks, I did the um, AFP blood work test, and it came back positive for spina bifida. Um, we looked closer, did an ultrasound, and she did not have spina bifida, but we noticed for some reason she had stopped growing. And um, we spent the next few weeks trying to find out why. We never had any answers. Um, the ultrasound showed her brain looked funny, but it measured funny, but it measured fine. So they couldn't, we couldn't really pinpoint anything. We constantly went back and forth to maternal fetal medicine, my OB, and just never had an answer. And then at 25 weeks, um, something happened, and the ultras, we were in the middle of an ultrasound, and the ultrasound tab walked out, and then the doctor came back in and said, you're now on bed rest, things aren't going well. And um, I went straight to a local hospital here that's known for a good NICU, and um, I was on bed rest there for 10 days. They monitor her, her heart trend, her blood flow patterns, and it just steadily deteriorated. And then they decided on November 30th, 2012, that was going to be her birthday. And we went in for an emergency C-section and she was born. Um, they predicted she would weigh less than a pound because she was so far behind from what they could tell in her growth, but she weighed one pound, seven ounces. And um, she, I swear I heard her scream. My husband says she didn't, but who knows? Um, and then she stayed in the NICU for 117 days, Ooh. so about four months. Yeah. While we were there, she was diagnosed with um, a brain injury from most likely the preterm birth and lack of oxygen. And we got note of that at less than two weeks old. She was about um, 10 days, if I remember right, when they said they noticed the brain bleed and some signs of damage. And then when she was two months old, it was official that she had brain injuries, and it was kind of just all over her brain. and. We've just kind of been going with it since. At two years old, she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and kind of the same diagnosis today. So what is her health like? What is her life like? And what is your life like? Yeah, um, she is, she can't walk. She's non-ambulatory, but she is very cognitively where she should be. She's age appropriate. She's verbal. So, um, that's what, that's her biggest holdback is that I think while she can't walk, she knows she can't walk. She knows she's not like her peers. And that's mm. been her biggest struggle. She'll go through times. And I hate to say a little kid has depression, but sometimes she just gets really sad about it. Yeah. But um, besides that, she's really happy. She has a para at school and 
she has two this year and she just loves them. And I think she kind of likes the extra attention because that's kind of how she is. She likes the attention and likes to be bubbly and happy. And, but she tends to relate better to adults because she has to rely on adults for everything. Um, sometimes her peers tend to baby her, but we're trying to encourage her to approach others as, you know, I'm just like you, I just can't walk, but she's seven. So she has to learn for us. It's, you know, they prepared me that you're going to ask this. And it was really hard because I feel like my whole life is modified around her. We spend one every Monday, we go to therapy every Wednesday, we go to swimming, you know, all the revolves around things to help her. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, I don't, I hardly even realize what we're doing anymore, but just making sure that areas are safe for her to be in. She can't, if she falls, she's not going to fall somewhere and hurt herself. Even if she's sitting, she's still a fall hazard. Um, you know, she even struggles to chew or feed herself. So we have to make sure all her food is cut up and we get her dressed in the morning. We help her with her handwriting and her homework. And it pretty much affects all areas of our lives, but we're so used to it now. It's hard to notice sometimes. Um, we still have her on a monitor in her bedroom because um, about a year ago, she threw up in the middle of the night and choked on it. Mm. And it took me about a minute to realize it was her throwing up and not her brother mm. and I, or not her brother coughing because I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Mm. So that was kind of scary. So we put her on another monitor just to make sure like that she sleeps on to make sure if she were to choke in the middle of the night, we would hear. Yeah. Yeah. So if she was able to walk, you would still probably be going to swimming and you'd still be doing you know, a lot of after school activities, but they have an entirely different focus for you and your family, don't they? They really do. We're working on just quality of life and making sure, you know, she's seven and we want to make sure that she can be independent if she wants to be. And so our whole focus as parents is pushing her as much as we can to get her to be independent, mm-hmm. but we don't want her to think we're um, forcing her to be independent or forcing to do something that she's not comfortable she can do. We don't want to make her feel poorly about herself or that we have these high expectations that we expect her to meet that maybe she won't. And then um, we also have to like watch our finances and plan for if something were to happen to us tomorrow that she's financially set. And I mean, that's a worry for every parent, but we also just want to make sure that if she were to need a nurse or health care, it's there for her. And a lot of it just focuses on giving her the best quality of life. And we don't know what that will be because she's not typical. So we don't know how to prepare for it. We're just doing the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like the world that she is growing up in now is a better place for differently abled children than if she had been born 20 years ago? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She is so loved by her peers and her friends and Sometimes I question if they're really her friend or if they're feeling sorry for her and just babying her almost. But um, I truly think they just love her as she is. I remember growing up and not being exposed to any kids with disabilities. And here she's just so well in her school. Um, She even played soccer on a typical team for a year. and Everybody just accepted it, went with it. And helped her feel good about herself, which is really what we wanted. And it definitely has been a good experience for her. And she actually, I was telling my husband, the next, from this weekend until March 7th, she's at a birthday party every weekend. So 
I feel like they still include her. You know, people are great if you give them the chance. And, you know, kids, yes. we always hear about how kids can just be so cruel to their peers. But, you know, given the opportunity and um, kids really shine and they show the rest of us, this is how it's done. You know, I'm happy for her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So what kind of resources and support did you have while she was in the, the NICU and, you know, during the early years? During the early years, we relied on a program called First Steps. And I don't know if that's, I think that's just Missouri-based, but it's a early intervention program that comes to our house and provided the therapy service she needed. Because they detected a brain injury prior to birth, she was set up with it coming home right from the hospital. Uh, and then when she graduated from First Steps at three, she went straight into the school setting where they provided services. And uh, she's received OT, PT, and speech. For a few years, she had, or for a few months, excuse me, she had feeding therapy because she had struggled to feed because her mouth was weak. Um, in school now, we also do, we use a club called Variety. They're uh, national, if not worldwide, I believe. And they provide services and support to families for children with disabilities. They have a camp she goes to every year. They help us find therapy programs. Um, we also, in the NICU, we used a lot of just what they provided to us. They had a hospital PT and OT that came to her. They fitted her for her splints then to help her feet grow. Um, they kind of had a um, an eye doctor who came in and looked at them, and we just kind of continued to follow up with him. We used Google a lot, and they gave us a book, um, the hospital did, about raising a preemie. We looked to March of Dimes a lot. We looked at the CDC a lot just to find information that wasn't a forum that had a lot of scary experiences from other people on it. Yeah. So that's, you know, one thing I wanted to address. It, it sounds like there were a lot of support sub services available for you to be able to focus on your daughter's needs, which is fabulous. What about your needs? What was available for you? Or how did you and your husband, you know, take care of, I mean, it, that's, no one expects to have a differently abled child. Everyone you know, is pregnant and expects that they're going to have the perfect child. And it's a bit shocking and disruptive. And there's a huge adjustment. Mm -hmm. And especially when, you know, you're, you have so many things that you have to provide. It's hard. It's a hard thing. It yeah. is. Yeah. How are you? Um, I, you know, every day is different. But actually, as a mom, we had nothing. There was nothing there to support me. Um, our hospital had like a parent support group that month, once or twice a month, depending on the month. And the parents could kind of just talk. So I met some people through there, but we really only connected over having premature babies. None of their babies had a disability like mm -hmm. Ella's. So I was just kind of on my own. I found moms through um, the school program and just kind of connected with them through there. But I kind of did it all on my own. After, shortly after Ella's birth, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, by my OB just because of some of the things I told her and that I was struggling with. And she got me some support there, but I relied a lot on my husband and just, we have a really good family support system who will watch our children if we need to. And that's always nice. There's also a local program here um, that provides respite to 
families of children with disabilities. And it simply focuses on getting the parents to like go out together and just enjoy themselves. So they give some allocated money, a set of money for the year, and we can go use that just to spend time together and focus on ourselves. But really, it's kind of all self-driven and self-found and me taking care of myself and my husband taking care of himself and taking care of each mm. other. Hmm. So much to learn through this experience, huh? When you have a, a life yes. that turns out to be really different than you yeah. anticipated. Very different. You know, we were just, um, got to the point where we were just thankful she was alive. And um, that kind of, right. at times that's relieving, but at times that's really sad too. But there's also really amazing silver linings. And I'm wondering if you've experienced mm -hmm. that. Yes. We, um, it's, it's funny you say that. We, when I was teaching, I happened to be good with children with disabilities. And they just kind of always placed the children with disabilities in my classroom. So I got used to it. I learned the resources. So I was kind of set up for it. And at one point, in my husband, in my pregnancy, my husband said to me, you know, it's good that we're getting the child with disability because we have a support system. We have family who will love her. We have friends who love her. And, um, not every child would necessarily get that. We can handle it. We're financially stable enough that we can do this. And like I said, we have a great support system. Our friends, our family, our friends, children just love her. And we were talking the other day, we, um, moved about three years ago into a house we love, in an area we love, in a district we love, where I teach. And um, we wouldn't have moved here if Ella didn't have cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. We moved here because the district was better for her. The home was better for her. We built our home so it was allergen and smoke-free for her lungs to be better. And we have amazing neighbors that we didn't have. And just connecting little things that wouldn't have happened if she didn't have cerebral palsy. And sometimes it feels horrible to think that way too. I feel guilty for thinking that, but it kind of keeps us like, okay, there can be good things coming out of this. We've made friends. We found a church we love all because of her cerebral palsy, essentially. And you know, when it comes right down to it, that's what it's really all about. You have a home that you love. You have a family and friend group that you love. You have a church group that supports you. You have a neighborhood that supports you. Seriously, mm -hmm. what else could anybody want? The 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 silver lining exactly. that I hear is that you have the insight and the wisdom to look at what you've got and say, you know what? This is gold. This is the gold. This is the good stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we try to see it. And we try to focus on that. And we just try to look at her and she's happy and also with my son, too, we've noticed um, I'm involved with our local variety and I'm on their family council. So my son is exposed to a lot of um, older kids with disabilities and it doesn't even phase mm -hmm. him. He will play with them, entertain them, and they range anywhere from severe cerebral palsy to autism to Down syndrome to executive functioning disorders. And he doesn't even flinch. And I can only hope and pray that he becomes a very accepting human and a leader because yeah. of that. And he's three and hopefully he's set an example yeah, for many. Yeah. Yeah. Such valuable things he's going to be learning in life too. Yeah. 
You guys are fortunate. You really are. You're fortunate. Um, it doesn't sound like there was anything at all that you could have done to prevent this, but that you learned so much in the process. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how the March of Dimes played into your experience. Sure. So when we started, um, there was I didn't have a good resource to go to. So I just kind of Googled and came across March of Dimes and they helped just share reliable information, whether they knew it or not. But that's what I found on their website. And then as we started the walk and doing the March for Babies, we just met some people and we got to um, learn from them and hear what we can do. And when we went to have our second pregnancy, it was slightly terrifying because we knew everything that could go wrong, but we were able to come up with a better plan and, you know, take more folic acid. I actually found out after I had my son that my body doesn't produce folic acid, but because the March of Dimes and what I'd seen, I learned how important folic acid was. So I really had taken extra, not knowing I truly needed it. I really focused on eating the right foods, getting all the things that kind of just had folic acid in it, making sure I had extra vitamins. Um, and I think that helped without me really even knowing that I had the deficiency. And that was all because of the things I learned from March of Dimes and the information they share. That's pretty remarkable. And then you learned about your own mm -hmm. health. And I bet knowing that, exactly. knowing what you know now, I mean, your body, of course, you know, you were focused on doing the right thing for your child, but, you know, you've got a body and a life here too. It's good that you know how to take care of it. It's really important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Something else they helped me that I didn't even think of until later. Um, and it was actually one of Ella's NICU nurses said to me, I was, I had to deliver Jake at 36 weeks. So he was a preemie too, but you can get steroid shots, which is a big March of Dines thing too. You can get that prior to 37 weeks. And so she kind of casually mentioned, mentioned to me, if you're having him earlier, you're getting those shots too. And I mentioned it to my OB and she was like, oh yeah, we can do that. And I, I think she would have suggested it, but just kind of reassuring it, that kind of helped too. So then his lungs were strong and healthy and I already didn't smoke, but you know, we made sure we just stayed away from smoking environments and our family and friends were supportive of that too. And I was already a healthy weight and as active as I could yeah. be. So you did, I was, I you did, did all the best. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ashley, what else do you want listeners to know about your family and your experience and about being a Ella's mom? You know, we are all just trying. And one of my biggest things as a mom is if you see another parent or child with a disability, um, a lot of times kids will stare or they'll ask a question in front of her and parents will just get embarrassed because we as adults, that's embarrassing. But Ella knows to talk about herself and how to share about herself. She shares about cerebral palsy with her class every year. And I think just let your child ask questions. Let them say hi. Let them just greet people because I know it's not malicious. It's just curiosity. And I think um, not knowing leads to fear, which leads to uncertainty, which leads to unacceptance. So just let your child ask questions if they have them. You ask them if they have them. And... Um, I think the best thing for me has been Ella's peers and their parents just saying, how can we welcome you and Ella? What can we do to make this better for her? And that might be awkward and uncomfortable them to ask, but it's so appreciated and I'm more than happy to share. And I think most parents are that way. And um, we just want her to be involved in normal 
I think most parents do. Okay. I just really loved hearing Ashley's story. Um, let's take a real quick break, and then we're going to come right back to talk with Stacy, whose child was also born prematurely and faced some pretty significant health complications. March of Dimes has a powerful new campaign, Best for You, Best for Baby, which started in January, Birth Defects Prevention Month, and goes all the way to March 3rd, which is World Birth Defects Day. You'll find all kinds of information about their campaign on social media at hashtag best number four you best for baby and find out five simple ways any woman can increase her odds for having a healthy pregnancy and baby. About one out of every 33 babies is born with a birth defect, which can be life-altering and even life-threatening. Yeah, those are scary numbers, but there are so many things women and their families can do to prevent becoming a statistic. Check out Best For You, Best For Baby on social media. Go on over to marchofdimes.org slash pp and p and be sure to give a listen to two special episodes on February 22nd and February 29th where we talk all about it. Okay, we're back and we are ready to get Stacy on the line. Hi Stacy, it's Jeannie. Hi Jeannie. How are you? I'm well. How about yourself? Doing really well. Um, where Good. are you where are you located in the country, Stacy? So I live in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Oh, you're on the It's a western suburb of Philly. Okay. You're on the entirely opposite end of the country. As I am. I'm in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Oh, one of my favorite places. Oh, yeah. You've been here? Yeah. We have good friends in Portland. Yes. All right. Cool. Well, um, I know that you and I just have a limited time that we get to talk today, so let's get right to it. And my first question for every guest is, who are you and what do you do? So my name is Stacy Mandel, and I am a mother of two. I have a daughter who is 15, and I have a son who's 13, and I'm married to my husband, Jason. I used to be an elementary school teacher um, for 14 years after a brief career in the entertainment industry, and then I coached teachers for about four more years on instructional practices, best practices. So... Two years ago, I resigned from my last position um, teaching to teach mindfulness to kids, to dedicate myself to teaching mindfulness to kids full-time. That's a cool gig. So that's what I'm doing now. That's a very cool gig and very, very needed. So to elementary school kids. Thank you. Um, I actually work with kids, you know, about elementary, a little younger, but usually elementary all the way through young adult. And I also work with their teachers and their therapists and their parents and anybody really who is interested in um, learning more about mindfulness and how it can impact youth. Awesome. Are you teaching them meditation? Yep. That's part of mindfulness. All right. Well, that's great. Yes. That is, a, that is a big part of what we do because it's a way to practice in the swimming pool before they kind of go out into the ocean. All right. That's cool. Well, we could do a whole episode about that. I'm very intrigued by that. Um, I would love to do that. (laughs) So you and I were connected through March of Dimes, who's doing a big campaign for January uh, to March 3rd called Best for You and Best for Baby. And 
I want you to just tell me a little bit about why they hooked the two of us up. So my daughter, Maxie, my 15-year-old, was born prematurely at 27 weeks gestation, um, out of the blue, no warning signs. My son was also born prematurely, um, but I was put on bed rest for him uh, at about 20 weeks, maybe a little sooner, because I was already high risk because they knew about my daughter. So they were watching me, and he uh, was born just um, a little less than a month early. Um, so, uh, he wasn't as in a dire situation, but, uh, my daughter received surfactant to develop her lungs while she was still in my womb. Mm-hmm. I was on emergency bed rest for a few days before I gave birth. And also, um, she was born with bilateral clefting. Mm. So mm. I think the combination of those two things is, is why we're connected. Yeah, absolutely. So... Her prematurity and um, bilateral clefting, and we're gonna we're gonna need to describe what that means um, to our listeners. Mm-hmm. But these were big surprises to you, right? Completely, yeah. completely out of the blue. Um, Maxie was my first child. Um, I was not pregnant before her, so no miscarriages or anything like that. And um, it was pretty much a standard picture-perfect pregnancy. I had no health issues, no health concerns. There were no concerns about her. And um, one day I just um, was feeling very crampy and was feeling a lot of pressure on my lower back. And I called everybody I knew um, who'd had babies and asked if that was normal. And, you know, I got a range of answers, but mostly just that it just kind of gets kind of crazy when you're in your last trimester um, and then I should call my doctor. So I did. I called my doctor um, and, uh, you know, at the time she didn't really, you know, she said just to kind of put my feet up, you know, watch for signs like, like blood spotting, um, to call her if the cramping got worse. Um, I, I called her the first time and we actually I was out, um, and it was raining. It was pouring rain that day, and we had a bad connection. I was on my cell phone, and I remember getting disconnected from her. And I think I didn't call back because, one, I have a high tolerance for pain. I just do naturally. I'm one of those people that likes to go outside in the freezing cold, and it's really, really hot, and I'm not too bothered by it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also I felt like, I think because it was my first pregnancy, I, for some reason, felt like I was imposing on my doctor if I was going to keep calling her back. Like she would have to come in and see me. It didn't dawn on me that, you know, I actually see her in a hospital setting. Her office is in a hospital and anybody in the practice or somebody would have seen me. But because it was my first pregnancy, it just, I don't know. And I'm fortunate enough to not have had other health issues. I wasn't, I just wasn't familiar with the way um, the medical logistics work. And I didn't want to impose on her and I didn't want to be whiny. And I just thought, oh, I'll just toughen up. And I'm sure everybody goes through this. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Until, until it was, until it was um, a bit too far gone. And then I, then it was emergency and I had to come in. (laughs) So you were in the hospital for a little while before she was delivered. Is that right? 
Yeah. So when I was admitted into the hospital, I was already four centimeters dilated mm. and I, she apparently had her foot. She was breached in that position, you know, at that time. And she had her foot actually poking out of my cervix. Hmm. Um, so no wonder broken? I was feeling, no, my water had not broken. Mm-hmm. My water never broke. Hmm. Um, and again, I just felt crampy. Yeah, I bet. When I finally did notice spotting, that is when I called her more panicked and she said, come in immediately. Mm. So when, when I came in, I was already at that point and they said to me, with, with what's going on, what we can see happening, it's, it's, um, you're, you're, you're 90 something percent likely to give birth within the week mm. and we need to put you on bed rest right away in the hospital, uh, which meant Trendelenburg position. And that basically means you're lying in the bed with your head um, down and lower than the rest of your body so that they're using gravity to keep the baby in versus gravity pulling the baby down. Yeah. Um, And I was also on a variety, a cocktail of medicines to stop the contractions Mm. because that's actually what was happening. The cramps I was feeling were contractions. Yeah. Yeah. Even though they weren't regular or anything like that. And dilated with a foot in your cervix. Yeah. That that yeah. baby girl was on her way. Yeah. 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 So yeah. What but I had no warning before that. <laughs> so Just what happened ended up day. happening? So what ended up happening was I lasted about five days like that. Mm-hmm. Um and then I felt extreme pressure, like I needed to push, and they told me not to because she was breech, um, and with her size and everything, but mostly I think because of the breech, if I, re- I can't recall exactly, um, and it was kind of like a scene out of a movie. It was very emergency, people flying everywhere, and the staff where I was, they were also getting out of another emergency. So I was just kind of like everybody on deck. My husband was there at the time and my sister was there at the time. And I remember them pushing me in the hospital bed. They were the ones, no guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> no gurney guy or gurney woman. Mm-hmm. They were the two that were pushing me running like crazy people down the hallway to get to the delivery room where they were going to give me an emergency C-section. Um and I did have to have an emergency C-section. They did not want me pushing the baby out, um, which was hard too because the more my I was kind of because of the drugs I was on. Um, I can't remember the one the name of it. Starts with an F. It kind of makes you feel a little bit like you're hallucinating, and it makes you, you don't feel like you're totally all there. Mm-hmm. I, the gravity of the situation was almost comical to me. It was getting surreal mm-hmm. and seeing my sister's face and my husband's face and they were trying to keep things a little, they weren't trying to let me in on everything because they didn't want me to panic. I would start giggling like nervously yeah. and the giggling was not helping the contractions. <laughs> so that's kind of like a little bit of everything, you know, painting that picture for you. But, yeah. um, you know, we got in there and had the emergency C-section. And also, unfortunately, because she was already so far down, the baby, they had to do um, a C-section where they had to make a T Mm. incision Mm -hmm. instead of the traditional, just horizontal, Mm -hmm. to get her out. And that also means that you have a higher percentage of um, rupturing 
the next time right. if, if you're pregnant again and give birth. Right, right. So Which she is was, actually what happened. Your daughter was delivered and she went to the NICU, right? Correct. So she went to the NICU. Um, she was in the NICU for 10 and a half weeks. Ooh, brutal. She was in... Yeah, she was in the first NICU at that hospital for a week before they told me they needed to transfer her to another NICU um, within the same health system, mm. about, you know, 15 minutes away and would need to go in an ambulance, in a special baby ambulance and all that. And that was very nerve-wracking, yeah. but they assured me that she was the strongest baby in the NICU to be transferred. So we went through that, and um, yeah, she was in NICU for a long time. And she was actually in the NICU for longer. So she was born at two pounds, four ounces, but she was in the NICU longer than she probably needed to be otherwise if she had not had the bilateral clefting. So I would love to talk about that for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Let's describe what that means to our listeners. So the bilateral clefting is that her cleft, her palate was actually normal. Um, her, her lips were normal. But on the sides of her mouth, where, you know, where your lips connect, the upper and the lower lips, mm -hmm. it was, like, um, too wide. Hmm. Um, she didn't have as, as um, close of a connection as, as a, a, a normal mouth would be. Hmm. And most, nobody else picked up on it, actually. So none of the neonatologists in the NICU thought anything of it. I always was saying, I feel like her mouth is too big. And they go, oh, no, no, she's just, you know, everything's a bit out of whack and she'll grow into it. But because of her mouth, we had trouble um, feeding her and having her gain weight. Mm. So we would have to, you know, I was always planning on nursing her and I did nurse her for over a year. But when you're in the NICU, you know, you're not there, you know with the breastfeeding issues and the milk coming in and you're not there 24 hours, right. you have to, you know, I pumped the whole time and the nurses were feeding her with my breast milk, um, in a bottle. And so they would have to squeeze her cheeks and, you know, put their thumb, like put their fingers underneath her jaw and do all this kind of, you know, all this contorting to make sure that she made a seal on the bottle. Yeah. So it took her a longer time to get out of the NICU because, it, it took her a longer time to, to, to put on weight. The way, one of the ways she got out of the NICU was um, when I started to kind of nurse her, I asked if I could nurse her more and if we could see, you know, what that was like. And um, also I was just kind of really jonesing to nurse her more. It was, you know, helped me feel like I was being more of a mom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the doctors who was, I think the only female neonatologist at the time actually agreed to let me stay overnight and camp out in the NICU in the little um, parent room on that couch mm -hmm. and bring her into, bring the isolate into that room and they would, you know, come and check on us. And they checked on us a million times and mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't sleep at all that night. I bet. And to see if she could actually maintain her body weight and her temperature and all that with nursing instead of the, the bottle. Right. And she did. And so that was a big clue that the breast was probably doing a good job filling, you know, filling her mouth. Yeah. So her mouth was actually, you know, was filling all the crevices more naturally than using the bottle. 
And so then I started nursing her more. And we busted her out. So at what point was she properly diagnosed and treated? Well, she wasn't properly diagnosed when I took her to the pediatrician. Um, He also had the same reaction that she would grow into her mouth. And I kept saying, I don't feel like this is, this mouth just doesn't seem normal to me. It's just too wide. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, if you really want to, you could take her to a specialist at CHOP, which is Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and uh, take her to, um, I don't remember the kind of specialist at the time, but I wound up at reconstructive surgery to the chair of the department at six months old. I took her. Mm -hmm. No, I I took her a little before six months old. Mm -hmm. Maybe she was like three months old or something like that. And he took a look at her and right away said, yeah, she has bilateral clefting, which is something you don't typically see in an, uh, here um, and with the way that you had, you know, my prenatal care and um, that she does need reconstructive surgery um, to close both sides of her mouth. One side was bigger than the other, more, more obvious than the other. Um, And that it was good that I went to him when I did because she got the surgery at about six months old. And if we had waited longer, let's say she was a year old or something, it would have been a little harder because she would have been more mobile. Mm -hmm. And she would have probably been wanting to tear out the stitches more and maybe bumping into things more, being more mobile. Um, And it's a bigger, you know, as you grow and the face grows, there's more surface area to stitch up. Mothers know. So it was good. Mothers know. Yeah. Yeah. You were dialed in on that. Yeah. Well, I know that we don't have a whole lot of time today, so I want to ask you some more questions about your situation. And I understand that you uh, eventually, after you had your son, if I'm not mistaken, did some genetic testing. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, actually, sort of correct, partly correct. I did genetic testing because that's kind of standard um, when you're when your daughter has bilateral clefting. So I did it then, even before my son was born, and nothing came up. There was no no reason, you know, nothing they could find in, in our genetics um, that was the reason for her bilateral clefting or for the premature birth, um, in addition to the genetic testing I'd done before, you know, while I was pregnant. So it wasn't until several years later where I was just working with an integrative doctor, which is a functional doctor, mm-hmm. um, an MD, and we were looking at some other health issues I was having, and they decided to test me um, for this gene, and this gene for for a variant of this gene called the MTHFR gene. Um, and the long the name for that is way too long; I can't pronounce it. Um, and I tested positive for a mutation. I had like the C mutation. There's a C and an A mutation, or you can have both. And only. Um, about 30 to 40% of the American population um, has this. So what does it mean when you have this? So when you have it, um, basically you, um, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was put to me. You make more homocysteine. Mm-hmm. Um, And you also don't break down B vitamins and folate the, the way that you would if you didn't have this variant. Um, 
basically they've they've done studies now that link um, gene mutations to depression, anxiety, bipolar, um, cardiovascular disease, um, colon cancer, lots of um, chronic pain, uh, pain and fatigue, migraine headaches, and also miscarriages in women who are of childbearing age and pregnancies with neural tube defects, mm. like spina bifida, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what... And they don't test for this. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say they don't test for it unless you already have very high homocysteine levels or other health, health indications. But, um, you know, the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, the American College of Medical Genetics, the American Heart Association, they don't recommend testing for it. There's specific indicators, these markers, like the high homocysteine. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what were your best resources and support services and coping tools while you were going through this? Going through the um, the, the NICU process, experience, or the whole process of you know going in and you know being in premature labor, going through the hospital, going through the NICU, getting through her surgery, and then you know where did you access support? Well, that's a really great question. Um, when I was on bed rest in the hospital. I was given some pamphlets. Some were put out by the hospital and some were from the March of Dimes. Um, um, And frankly, a lot of it was really scary, terrifying. Um, You know, the attending doctor who I'm very good friends with and who I love, he had to go through the whole list of everything so that I was informed. And, you know meant to be a resource, but really terrifying, frankly, um, and overwhelming, um, and really freaked me out. I mean, I got resources on, you know, information on the, um, surfactant that was injected into my womb Mm because that all had to be timed Mm -hmm. at a very specific time so that I gave birth within the window so that it would be most effective. If you wait too long, then it kind of wears off. So I, I was, you know, that helped me. I felt good about getting that surfactant to develop her lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was reassuring. I really was so busy and so just focused on pumping around the clock and getting to to the NICU to see my baby and the progress of my baby that I really wasn't reaching out for resources. I wasn't doing much research on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, There is somebody at the hospital in the NICU, a social worker who's there, um, if you need them, that can then point you to further resources, um, anything you need. And actually, I'm very involved now in an organization that provides resources. It's called PAN, Parent Action Network. And the mainline hospitals in the Philadelphia area, you know, where I am on the main line, it's a support group specifically uh, for NICU families and parents to provide them with someone who's been through the NICU. So I've been like trained to just kind of be a support, mm-hmm. not an expert, not a medical expert at all, right. um, but somebody who can listen sympathetically and then point them to other experts or resources um, if they ask for it. Mm-hmm. We can also help them mm-hmm. get to the hospital if they need a ride, you know, and they don't have a ride or they are trying to figure out where do I rent a breast pump, um, you know, anything like that. 
um, I'm involved with that still. And I think that's a great support system and also can be a great resource. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of it. A lot's that changed. I can think of right now. A lot has changed in the 15 years since you had your daughter, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, we have a lot more information at our fingertips, definitely. And we know a lot more. Yeah, yeah. And there are support services like the ones that you provide. You know, that, that really wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. How is your daughter now? She's incredible. Great. She's a sophomore in high school. She, um, her health issues or, you know, that are connected, um, mainly virus-induced asthma. She did get RSV uh, when she was one years old, even though she got these really expensive shots, um, you know, because preemies are prone to flu and, and RSV. She did have a serious enough case um, that she was hospitalized, and they say that that does trigger asthma. So she has been battling that her whole life where she gets a cold and it goes straight into her lungs and there is no sleeping for mm-hmm. nights on end. And mm-hmm. when she was younger, it was all the time and it was lots of emergency room trips. So scary. Um, she's a singer. She's a singer, songwriter, a musician. She plays guitar and piano. She's a very powerful singer. And she has these little lightning bolt scars on either side of her mouth where the surgery was. So I don't think it's an accident. Um, I really don't that she has gone through what she's gone through. Um, I just don't think it's an accident. Hmm. Hmm. That's a pretty amazing story. Well, we're at the point where we need to do a quick wrap up. Um, I know that you have to get on to other things. So I just wanted to ask you a couple of super fast questions if I could. Go for it. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that having children would be as crazy, marvelous, painful, wild, rewarding, sad, scary, inspirational, and full of love as it is. Yeah, that's a pretty comprehensive list. Good job. Yeah, it was the best I could do in the five seconds I had to answer the question. (laughs) All right. Then my last question for you is, where are you in the world of motherhood? Where am I in the world of? Motherhood. Oh, um, I'm in a happy place. Mm. I'm in a happy place. Um, I feel a really good connection with my kids and, um, we communicate a lot about all topics and I feel really fortunate that they feel like they can do that with me. And it's just very, um, it's very rewarding. That's great. That's great. Well, Stacy, I really appreciate your sharing your story with us. Um, you know, we're doing these special episodes to support the March of Dimes campaign, and I appreciate your sharing. Thank you very much. Thanks to our sponsor, March of Dimes, and be sure to check out their powerful new campaign, hashtag best for you, best for baby, and head on over to marchofdimes.org slash pp and p. All right, everybody, that's it for this week. 
Next week, we'll be talking with a doctor who represents the March of Dimes to get more information about what parents can do to prevent birth defects and resources they can access if their child has health complications. Thanks for listening, and as always, you can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. That's J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. Email me at gene at genefaulkner.com. Tweet me at Gene Faulkner. And you can find us over on Facebook and Instagram at Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. We'll talk again next week, everybody. Bye-bye.